here's the thing about Some Like It Hot. It's been considered one of the greatest comedies of all time. And I think, you know, that terminology can misconstrue some things because as a comedy, yes, it's really funny. I wouldn't call it the funniest movie of all time because that's Airplane. Airplane is the funniest movie of all time. Or Wayne's World. But with Some Like It Hot, it's not that it's a great comedy because of how funny it is. It's a great comedy because of the story it's telling. It's wickedly insightful. It's very thoughtful about its characters. It's got great performances from Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis. It's just so much more thoughtful than people give it credit for. They think it's this silly cross-dressing movie. And it is. But there's something else going on with this film. And it, and it requires, you know, not, not requires, but it benefits from kind of a deeper look. And so we had a great time looking at this film. It's Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. Welcome, everybody, once again to that late, great, wonderful, still-going show, A Gentleman's Guide to Rom-Coms. I am Kelly McCrillis, and as always with me is Marilyn Monroe. Hello, I'm Marilyn... Sorry. Sorry, Marilyn Monroe. You deserve so much better. No, My no, no. You Ryan can keep Graves. going like this. I think I think uh, doing high falsetto for this particular film is fine. <laughs> I like how Jack, Jack Lemmon didn't even try. He didn't even try. He did, too. I think... Uh, from from everything I read about this movie, Jack Lemmon was like, I really want it to feel more like a guy who is not good at this is doing this. Yep. And they, he pulled that off with aplomb because him and Tony Curtis both had like somebody teaching them how to walk in, a cabaret dancer teaching them how to walk in high heel shoes. And after a couple of weeks, Jack Lemmon quit. He's like, I just want to look like a guy who walks bad in high heel shoes. Yeah, because they definitely are bad at it, but they, they do pass. They do pass. They do pass. Um, well, this week we are watching Some Like It Hot, uh, 1959's Some Like It Hot? Something, something like a hot year, like 59. Um, right before the raging 60s, that's what they called them. And, uh, the reason we're doing this and not L.A. Story is because L.A. Story was only available for purchase. You couldn't even rent it online. And we just didn't want to do that to our listeners. So, um... We'll make a post. We have already, by the time you're listening to this, made a post just kind of saying that we're doing this movie instead. But how did we come to Some Like It Hot, Ryan? Well, I called you concerned, frightened, and confused. I said, L.A. Story is only for purchase. Let's do something else. So we needed to make a spectrum, and we wanted to find a movie in the middle of a spectrum. Correct. So we had to create a dichotomy. Right. And... On one side of the spectrum, I asked my mom, just tell me a random rom-com, just any rom-com, and she gave me the Philadelphia story. Mm-hmm. And then you asked, good friend. My of- mom, Rachel Foskett. No, that's <laughs> not right. But, but wouldn't that be great? I bet she'd be an awesome mom. The lovely Rachel Perel Foskett, friend of the show, guest on the show, is crashing at my place because she's filming a, sh- uh, a film this week and it's been really fun and she got to contribute an answer and she said to Wong Fu mm-hmm. thanks for everything thanks for everything Julie Newmar where uh, Peace Ways uh, and Wes Snipes and Jay Leguizam Jay Leguizam <laughs> that sounds like Jay is Le- that a good rap is that a good rap name Jay Leguizam um, Jay Leguizam yeah it's I either like that it. or a euphemism 
but what, what I wanted to do was find the perfect middle ground between these two films. And it came to us almost immediately. It was some like it hot, something with a little cross dressing, something with a little bit of, you know, old fashioned flair. And little did I know a Cary Grant's uh, impersonation. <laughs> I didn't get it at first that he was doing a Cary Grant impersonation. And then I read about it. I was like, oh, duh, dummy. You've seen oh, like a hundred Cary Grant movies. What's wrong with you? That's so funny. Cause like immediately Robin and I were like, oh, he's doing a Cary Grant. Well, is he? Cause the accent does change. It, it starts a little weird. It starts Cary Granty and then it, it maneuvers into like maybe British. Um, did you watch it with English? your parents? I did. You're up. Did they like it? Have they seen it before? Oh yeah, they'd seen it quite a few times. Good, they loved they it. Had a, they had a good time. Yeah, they had a bitch in time, as my mom S- would say. Still, my favorite memory with your dad is watching Jerry Lewis stuff on the television. Oh, you were watching like documentary with him, right? Yeah, and he and I were just laughing like a bunch of j- jackasses, just having the <laughs> greatest time of our life. Uh, I'm so glad. At least, at least my dad has fun with someone. Just kidding, Dad. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> he took uh, us on speak- a hike today. That's fun. Yeah. Hey, speaking of fun, I got a game for you. Oh, what? What? Yeah. For me? Yeah. Aw, Merry Christmas. Mazel tov. Merry Christmas. Here's a game. All right. The game today that we are playing is called That's Not My Movie. It's not my movie. That's <laughs> not my movie. That's I'm not my going, movie. We're going to play three rounds of That's Not My Movie. Okay. And I'm going to name a person that okay. was in our movie today, Some Like It Hot, and I'm okay. going to name four films. Okay. Three of them were by them, or they were in. They were in. One okay. of them is not, and okay. you have to tell Find me the which one, that one isn't. is not. <laughs> this is like IMDb uh, speed dating, kind of. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I'm here. I'm ready. First round. We're doing Billy Wilder, okay. director okay. of Some Like It Hot. Yes, he is. And writer. Your, yeah. Co-writer. Your choices are Sunset Boulevard. Okay. Witness for the Prosecution. Okay. Charade. Okay. Sabrina. Okay, I know he did Sunset Boulevard and Sabrina. Um, what were the other two again? Witness for the Prosecution and Charade. He did not do Charade. He... Correct is yes. Kelly uh, did not do charade. Who was, was that? Preminger? Nope. Who I was will that? give you. I will give you a bonus point if you can guess it correctly. Um, he was a musical director before he made this film. Uh, was it a Powell? And, no, <laughs> nope. uh, it wasn't Powell and Pressburger. They didn't do musicals. Um, was it a Five, team? Four, three, uh, I don't two, know. one. It was Stanley Donnan. Oh, Stanley Donnan. Uh, Director he... of Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yep. Hey, wow. <laughs> wow. You know, uh, Stanley Donnan, not not too unlike uh, Billy Wilder, has, I, I feel like they could direct any genre. I mean, especially Billy Wilder. Yeah. I mean, Billy Wilder, we'll go over his uh, career later, but probably the best eclectic career any director could have. For sure. Like, I mean, if you take a, what's another director of the era that was as big or well, probably bigger, like somebody like John Huston, where it's like, okay, you do one thing or a couple things really, really well, but Billy Wilder can just do anything. Yeah. All right. Next question. Okay. Mr. Jack Lemmon. Yes. Uh, I think this is... I don't know. We'll see. I think it might be too easy, but let's give it a shot. Okay. The Lady Eve. 
Grumpy Old Men, Glengarry Glen Ross, and Irma LaDuce. Okay, well, I know, okay, so I know he was in Grumpy Old Men and Glengarry Glen Ross. I know that Irma LaDuce is also a wilder, am I correct? I'm, I don't know. Okay, I, I'm gonna say the one he wasn't in was, uh, what was the, the fourth one? The, your choices are Lady Eve, Grumpy Old Men, Glengarry Glen Ross, and Irma LaDuce. I'm gonna say the, the Lady Eve. You are correct. Yes, okay. I, I only got that last one because I knew that, you know, actors act with directors and Irma LaDuce is um, yeah. another Wilder. I, yeah. I was hoping that you hadn't heard of Irma LaDuce. Uh, well, I only really know. I haven't seen it. The only reason I know that movie is because I know that Marilyn Monroe wanted to be in it. Um, mm-hmm. And Wilder was done with her at this point. Mm. All right. Speaking of Marilyn, that's our oh. last round. Oh, Monroe. I'm going to fail this one. <laughs> okay. Okay. Bus stop. Gentlemen prefer blondes. The original Moulin Rouge. Or Seven Year Itch. Gosh, she would be good in the original Moulin Rouge. Bus Stop sounds like a a Marilyn Monroe film. So I'm going to say the original Moulin Rouge. You are correct again. That oh, is are you kidding me? Three in a row. <laughs> Whoa. I... No, I thought I was going to fail this whole thing. Thank you, Ryan. I feel better. I, I'm going to go. I, I got to go like do something good in the world now. I feel I great. Think, I think we can agree, though, that I gave you some good challenges. You did. Those were good. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that I knew a couple of those. Because the job. OG, the OG Moulin Rouge, it's Zaza Gabor. Okay. the leading lady. And... Diamonds Are a Girl Best Friend is in the is, new Moulin Rouge, which, which is, something is a Marilyn that, song. Uh, yeah, that Marilyn sang. I, you know, I, I feel like Marilyn couldn't pull off what Nicole Kidman pulled off. So, uh, Zaza. Vice versa. Yeah. Vice versa. Oh, vice versa, indeed. Yeah, very different actors, but um, I think Zaza makes sense. Zaza. 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 I'd say huzzah to you, and let's dive right into our movie today, 1959's Some Like It Hot. Would you like to tell me a story? Yes. Tell me a story, Turk. Let me tell you a story about love, D'Artagnan. I ask you about love, probably quote me a sonnet. I'm not much more than an interpreter, and not very good at telling stories. That's the end. What do you mean, that's the end? That's not. It's the beginning of something interesting. Listen, that's the end of that saga. The end. So... We're plunged into 1929. It's the great uh, city of Chicago. Chicago in Illinois. We're in the midst of prohibition, and we're in the midst of rum running and all the crime wave that came with prohibition. And we, I mean, I think they were, there's a lot to do with bourbon in this movie. I think rum might have been a more southern drink in the day. What do you think? Well, I don't know too much are you about the prohibition. A, are you a rum runner if you're doing it in the Midwest? At that point, you're like a whiskey runner, but that just doesn't roll off the tongue. I think the more north you go, the more um, the more that more difficult it is to drink. Like you know, rum's got some sweetness. It belongs in the southern vibe, where you know you've 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 got sugar cane, and then you go north and it's a little bourbon. You go north of that, it's whiskey. North of that, it's scotch. Yeah, I think I think being a rum runner is something that Ernest Hemingway wants to do in the bedroom with you. And, you know, let's just not, let's just He's not like, go there. My, my ex used to do the rum runner with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thank you for the drink, Mr. Hemingway. I gotta go. I think a woman is equal to a man in courage. 
Have you ever shot a charging lion? Uh, <laughs> don't drink that. <laughs> um, and so we're in Chicago, and this movie starts off with a car chase and a fun car chase at that. Yeah, it's a damn good one. Um, we basically are following following these guys in a hearse, and um, they're they're they all. All of them look like mobsters. Like all of them got broken noses aplenty and scars and like big like baseball mitt faces. And then they're followed by the cops. There's a shootout. Um, but they get away and end up in this club set in the back of a funeral home. A, a, right. a, a non-modern day speakeasy, if you will. Right. And the police get ready to do a, a raid. And as they're getting to do their raid, we meet our main main heroes, Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis, both of them so tasty in this movie. I must oh, say, so tasty. And are, so tasty. What, what's your favorite Jack Lemon role? I mean, it's weird. I think I've seen him more as an older. Well, maybe, maybe as an older man. He's he's so good when he's in the '90s in Glengarry Glen Ross and, and grumpy, grumpy old men mm-hmm. and grumpier old men. But sure. he, he's great in this, and he's great in the apartment. And so I don't know. I can't. I couldn't. I can't say. And, and he's great um, in The odd, odd Couple. Right, right, yeah. of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not that much of an odd couple in this film. They're just two good friends that are kind of down-on-their-luck musicians who finally got a gig, which ends when it gets busted up by the cops. And right. Tony Curtis is your like fast-talking, betting-on-the-doggies-and-the-ponies the kind of dude. And Jack Lemmon, at first, kind of is the straight man of the group. Right. He's the put-upon friend. Which is ironic, because there's not much straightness in this movie. <laughs> no, no, it's a very gay film. Yeah. And they end up witnessing, after after they run out of money, uh, they end up witnessing a crime. Basically, this movie's equivalent of the Valentine's Day Massacre. There's a bunch of moments where they're like, get it, the Valentine's Day Massacre, it's coming up. It's right. Valentine's Day. Um, and they witness this murder and the the mobsters, like there is this guy what's his name spats because he wears spats, yeah, spats on his feet hey, spats. spats what ryan what's the purpose of spats are they just fancy sock shoes so spats uh actually predated spanks and spats oh. were for your um your man girdle and it's supposed to keep in your man boobs and your tubby chest your foot your foot breasts yes <laughs> um or, or another or, way to put it is, I have no clue. <laughs> I like, hey, hey, um, for all I know, back in the 30s, gangsters had big flappy feet and they needed these spats to just keep them nice and tight. <laughs> uh, but basically, right, right before this happens and they witness this murder and the gangsters see them and chase after them, um, we've got them looking for work at what seems to be the equivalent of a musical T- like placement agency or a temp yeah, agency. You know, this is in the day when, you know, if you wanted to listen to music, you could listen to records at the time, which were only, uh, only EPs. You couldn't listen to LPs. So, you know, there was a lot more live music in general, mm-hmm. but especially in Chicago, oh, hot yeah. town like Chicago, hot jazz, you got lots and lots and lots of musicians playing in town. And there's just a lot. I mean, you know, have you ever seen that movie Marty with Ernest Borgnine? No, I haven't. They go to like dances in that movie and it looks like high school dances, but for like grownups. And I think that was just a thing where there was just more live music, every kind of thing happening where it's like you go to a club or you can go to a dance hall or you go to mm-hmm. like a big orchestra hall. And I think 
I kind of miss those days, don't you? Well, I don't miss them because I've never had them, but there is like, what is, what is that thing where you have a false nostalgia for something where it, it feels like something you want to have done. Yeah. It's kind of like how you miss the days of your and Jane Austen's time. It's like, man, I wish I could live on a giant estate like that. Man, I miss living on China. Oh wait, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. That was Mr. Darcy. That was not me, but I want to be like Mr. Darcy, but yeah, they're, they're musicians and they're looking for work at this agency, which they this plum not, out of work. Yeah, they're not super popular there. I love how this movie kind of takes, it is like, it just hints that the stock market is like crash is coming. There's like a, a lot of people that are seemingly like out of work. Prohibition's a big thing. And they keep talking about, hey, the stock market's up. The stock market's up. I got to put my money in stock and put right. 50000 on this thing. Right. And this is the year it crashes. Um, but they can't find work until they get to this one place where Tony Curtis like sidles up to a secretary that he like ditched on a date the other day. And I think Tony Curtis must be really good in bed. Cause he really <laughs> treats this woman pretty poorly, but then she's like, Oh, whenever you kiss my neck, Tony Curtis. Oh yeah. Uh, I, th- I agree. I think Tony Curtis is good in bed. Did right. I just say that out loud. I mean, yeah, I he must, did. he, at least in the, in the canon of this film, I think he was yeah. good in bed. Um, his character, what's his character's name? You, his name's Joe, Joe, Joe. Cause you got Joseph and Gerald, uh, mm-hmm. Jack Lemon is Gerald. And then they overhear or kind of segued into the office when, um, the guy who is like the agent who books everybody tips them off that there's like this position open in an all girls band for a saxophonist. And what they keep calling a stand-up fiddle is yeah. no, a bow fiddle, which is yeah. basically a bass, right? Yeah, it's kind of like a regular fiddle is just a violin, but it's just how you play it. Sure, right. Um, and so they, they overhear this, and Jack Lemmon's like, yeah, let's do it. And Tony Cruz is like, no way, I'm not dressing up like a dame. But then they witness this murder, and they're on the lam, and so Tony Cruz is all on board, and they dress up like dames and head to Florida. They dress up like dames pretty quickly. Yeah. Like, they seem to know what they're oh, doing. They kind of know lot their of way times, around. There's a lot of times in this movie where uh, they like go upstairs, change really quick, and they're in like pretty spot on makeup. And hey, they're gentlemen of the stage. They might have like helped apply some makeup sometime somewhere. Yeah. And it's Shakespeare rules. Whenever there's cross-dressing in Shakespeare, they can do it in like 10 seconds and be like completely convincing. Exactly. And I, okay. The first time we, we get a look at them, they're walking on heels, but they're kind of doing like, Hey partner, we got to <laughs> yeah. escape these gangsters kind of walks. Yeah. And I, it's, but it's really good. And they both look really good. Like they, and do you know how they like figured out whether their looks would pass? Well, I read they they walked around town, and the the big test was they went into a ladies' room right. and didn't get thrown out of the ladies' room. Yeah, and they but Tony Curtis wasn't really quite satisfied with that, and he had them do do him up a little bit more, and they went in again and were ID'd immediately, and so um, they went back to the original look that worked, which I, I think it's down it's tasteful, and you know there's they're not like doing a ton of well in black and white it really it it's really I think a little bit more easy to, you know, pass, uh, with the amount of makeup that they had. That's a big reason why Wilder put it in black and white. Right. That's, I mean, you know, we're two years away from breakfast at Tiffany's We're we're, we're pretty much in the land of color filmmaking. And Mm -hmm. this is kind of like the last great, 
I mean, there's others, you know, down the road, you know, but it's the last kind of like time it's normal to have a black and white film. After that, it's going to be weird if you ever do something in black and white. I mean, Marilyn Monroe at this point in time had it in her contract that she could only do color films. Mm-hmm. And basically, they Billy Wilder said, like, we just can't do it because Jack Lemmon and Tony, Tony Curtis's makeup <laughs> is just it's basically green because we've just had to smooth them out. Yeah. <laughs> so they get on this train and um, they meet all the ladies and immediately like their their plan is to be Josephine and Geraldine, which are just like um, like um, feminized versions of their names. And. Uh, immediately, I love that moment when Jack Lemon changes his name to Daphne and is just super happy about it. <laughs> I finally get to be Daphne. It's so good. <laughs> but there, there's a kind of a weird proto-proto trans storyline to this, but it's super proto. It's super pseudo, super like they're so not aware of what is, you know, to come. But it's one of those things where it's like the name part, you know, it's part of the identity. You know, it's it's he got to pick that. He's like, I get to be Daphne. This is great. And it's kind of a cool thing to see for him. And it speaks obviously more towards um, like cross-dressing and and just basically like living, living your, (laughs) well, I mean, I don't know. Like this movie is so both ahead of its time and of its time at the same time. Right. You know what I mean? Um, But they they had, did you know that the Catholic... um, what was that guild called? The, the Catholic League. The Catholic League. They actually uh, censored this at one point in time. Oh, sure. And they, they didn't play it in Kansas. Uh, <laughs> the, the official edict, I think, from Kansas's governor was um, uh, this movie is too, too much, uh, has too much cross-dressing for Kansans to, to bear. Oh, poor Kansas. Yeah. Sorry, Robin. <laughs> Got a lot of catching up to do there, Kansas. But, yeah, they... It's it's really I think they just really slide over any of the like social politics of this and really just jump right into gender politics, which mm-hmm. is fun. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think they just do a tremendous job of it in this film, especially for the era. What do you yeah. think? I I I concur. I concur definitively. Um and they jump they jump on the train where Jack Lemon apparently becomes a horn dog when he's dressed up as a lady. I thought it was going to be Tony Curtis. I think Tony Curtis was see what happens is they see Marilyn Monroe and basically they're like, "Wow, Marilyn Monroe is in this movie." Look at that. Look how she moves. That's just like Jello on springs. Have some sort of built-in motor or something. They're like hachi machi. Yeah, they are both intimidated by her. And I think Tony Curtis is more, more of a mortal. Where he's like, well, that woman is goddess. There's, there's no way. There's, Mm -hmm. there's just no possible way. Plus, Tony Curtis is really being strangely the responsible one. Where he's like, incognito. We cannot come out as dudes here. Right, but it doesn't make like. This is the only sticking point I had with the film is that they set up Tony Curtis as like the louse who bets on the the the, the ponies and doesn't want to go dress up as as women and join this band. And then as soon as they are, they do a big switch. Right. But he's the schemer. So what happens is let's get through it and then we can kind of explain okay. why I think it, it does work. Okay. Uh, they meet they meet Marilyn Monroe and they have a great like meet cute with her that they stumble onto her drinking whiskey and you know she's being naughty and she's yeah. like oh I gotta keep it from <laughs> and they're the... they're real cool she's like you guys cool and we're like we're cool we're, we're cool. cool. 
just just kind of a cool thing of like, hey, let's have a little drink together. It's you know, let's be a little, let's be a little naughty together. And uh, they they all get along, and you know, we meet the rest of the band, and they're a, a body bunch, all all lady band. That that night, they have a a great interaction where she jumps into bed with Jack Lemon. It's a basic. Just, to basically get drunk because he covers for her once when they catch her drinking. Yeah, and he's yeah. besides beside himself. And I think it's just the best the, the best filmic thing to happen is to see Marilyn Monroe jump into bed with a man and you're just like Whoa! <laughs> like it would just be like the most it, it would break your brain the fantasy that breaks your brain you know yeah i yeah and like it it almost does break his brain because like he's shaking and he just like can't quite handle being next to this uh and Catherine hepburn would take umbrage with this goddess um Mm -hmm. but he before he can i mean there's there's a little bit of uh i'm gonna get you drunk and then like reveal to you that i'm a guy but just you wait do have a couple more drinks and then maybe we can start making out or something yeah Um, i I think he was hoping for like some lady cuddling and um just seeing where the night would go (laughs) yeah like hey maybe well and we'll we'll get more into that later, but um, then they're interrupted by basically every other woman on the train in this band who all crawl into this, uh, they clown car into this bed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it is hilarious because like J- Jack Lemon's trying to make something happen with Marilyn Monroe. He's like, get out, get out. And he doesn't even realize that there's like a thousand other beautiful women just crawling into bed with him. Literally jumping into bed with Jack Lemon. And, and he, and he's so upset. But then later on when we catch back up to him, he's just having a gay old time. Um, yeah. Well, that's he's having we, the time of his life. He really movie. is. I like Jack Lemon is amazing in this film. Yeah, no, he's, and, he's wonderful. And he just has so much vim and vigor. Apparently he was the one who was super comfortable with, um, dressing up, um, as Daphne and, um, Josephine, whereas Tony Curtis had to be, a little bit more like handheld, like Jack yeah. Lemon was always pulling him out of his trailer. I read that someone was like, "Hey, Tony Curtis, why are you looking more ladylike?" And Tony Curtis is like, "Well, I'm being shy in the frame, <laughs> and I'm being more like reserved." And Jack Lemon is just way too outray, like comfortable <laughs> called, with everything. He called him a tart. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, then after after Jack Lemon gets accosted by all these women then Tony Curtis gets to have his time with Marilyn and yep. they really hit it off and Marilyn has this kind of like monologue where she's like yeah I'm just kind of a dummy and you know I'm in all these bands and I don't know what I'm doing with my life and she's really down to earth earth with she him she is and she's really really charming and she's she's that um socratic like smart person because she's wise enough to know that she's not wise and it takes a smart person to say that they're dumb. Yeah. She's just extreme. She's extremely herself, which Mm -hmm. um, I I think Marilyn Monroe, albeit not one of the greatest actors of all time, has so much charisma coming out of her every pore that she can play this role. I I think she might've been the only person who could really play this role. Yeah. I mean, you, you you try and do this movie with Jane Mansfield instead and try try to put no, a pinup no girl in there and just would not work at all. So the what Marilyn reveals to Tony Curtis is she's like, Yeah, I just want to find a rich guy to get married and you know, then I'll be happy. And so Tony Curtis is like, Okay, message received. Logging that information for later. Right. And so this is what 
we see them do when they arrive in Florida. They all get there. They get their rooms. They're getting ready to play the show. And so they got some time on the beach. And so Jack Lemmon goes and, like, girls up with all the girls down on the beach. They're having fun. But Tony Curtis starts a scheme where he starts dressing up as a rich dude with a Cary Grant accent. And we'll play some of that right here. Oh, your society girl. Oh, yes, quite. You know, Bryn Moore, Vassar. We're just doing this for a lark. Syncopators. Does that mean you play that very fast music, uh, jazz? Yeah, real hot. Oh, well, I guess some like it hot. I personally prefer classical music. Oh, I do, too. As a matter of fact, I spent three years at the Sheboygan Conservatory of Music. He schemes to seduce Marilyn Monroe. And here's the thing. I think Tony Curtis is all about the long game. And oh, Jack Lemon. Jack Lemon is about the short game, and it's not working for Jack Lemon because you can't get her in the short game. You got to get her in the long game. Yeah, Jack Lemon is like a thousand pawns on a chessboard, just diving straight into the enemy, and like basically Tony Curtis is the chess master sitting in the back. Right, and it's pretty effective. He basically says that he's a heir to the Shell Corporation, which is <laughs> it just know? his name ends up being Junior. <laughs> yeah, you know, it definitely gets um, the job done. And at at the same time as he's seducing her, there is this guy Osgood who's like an old millionaire who <laughs> is trying to seduce Daphne, uh, Jack Lemmon's character, and mm-hmm. he's he's really playing up that like nineteen twenties um, male uh, stereotype where he's just like, oh, that's right, I'm going to follow you into this uh, elevator. I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to pinch your butts. And so there's a, you know, there's a little bit of uh, physical molestation going on here Mm -hmm. with Mr. Osgood. But then uh, circumstances being what they are, Tony Curtis decides to steal that guy's boat. And so he needs (laughs) Jack Lemmon to basically take him out on a date on land. Um, And it's really funny. Like Jack Lemmon, Jack Lemmon doing the tango with, um, what is that guy's name? Uh, Johnny, Johnny, Joe E. Brown. That's Joe Brown. Letter E. Brown is hilarious. And the guy who played the gangster, uh, like the main spats gangster actually taught them how to tango together. That's great. Yeah. The, the one, the one issue I have for Jack Lemmon is why does he go in on this plan to help out Tony Curtis? I don't know because Jack Lemmon at this point in the story also is interested in Marilyn, but the way I kind of justify it is that maybe he's just actually having so much fun being Daphne that Marilyn Monroe is just now second fiddle to this new joy he's found. And I think we see that in the fact that he's like, yeah, I'm going to get married to Osgood now because he proposed. And sure, I'll break up with him once he finds out I'm a I'm a dude. But at the same time, I'm having a lot of fun. Well, let's get through the rest of the plot because I do want to kind of talk about the queerness of this movie. And I think sure. there's a lot going on with that uh, intentionally and unintentionally. I think so as well. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> Tony Curtis is getting Jack Lemon to do his bidding. And Tony Curtis has the seduction scene with Marilyn Monroe and the yacht. And man, she, she sorry, guys, she is hot. It she is. is so hot. Like that dress is Almost like her not wearing a dress, even more so than if she was naked. And, you know, that's the thing is that there are, there are movies with Jane Mansfield where you're just kind of staring at her. And that's what she's there for, that you stare at her. But Marilyn is a presence in this. She it's, is. It's not like we're 
it's not like we're drilling over a Playboy picture. We're, no, we're, she is taking over the scene. Yeah, we're drilling at her power in this scene that she really has seduced every viewer. And we're just kind of not looking at anything else on screen, just her. And again, not in an ugly way. It's not fair to Tony Curtis because he... I. I don't actually know much more about Tony Curtis's like career. I, I know he was kind of the, the king of the matinee for a while, but he, Marilyn, if it, she's like that person who steps into a room at a party and everybody says their name mm-hmm. and the person that you were talking to just doesn't matter quite as much anymore. Cause this mm-hmm. person's here. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of when at the Grammys in the nineties and JLo wore that dress, you know, the mm-hmm. dress I'm talking about. I know the dress. And she's presenting an award with David Duchovny. And David Duchovny says, Jennifer, this is one of the moments in my life where I know no one in this room is looking at me. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same for Tony Curtis. It's just like, you do not matter in this movie anymore. Marilyn is what matters. Okay, so let's talk about Tony Curtis's seduction technique, which is, I I think we need to come up with a name for it. Because it's not negging, necessarily. It's... He, he basically says that like at one point in time he was in love with someone and that person, when they were about to have their first kiss, fell off the rim of the Grand Canyon and died. Yeah. And since then, he basically, for lack of a better phrase, hasn't been able to get it up. Like just anything sexual doesn't do it for him. And you know and- what? The pilot of Friends steals this. And it's really disappointing when you realize Friends pulls the same trick on Monica in the pilot and she gets tricked by a guy who says this. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I don't I don't even remember that. It's been such a long time since I've seen the pilot. They outrageously steal this thing, and I'm like, gotcha, friends. Gotcha. What were you going to say? Well, er, er, ever since she left me, um, I, haven't, I haven't been able to uh, perform sexually. Gotcha, <laughs> but also... Great artist steal, maybe? Uh, maybe. This is more, you, it was more borrowing. It was barely it was barely thievery. So basically, well, getting back to Mr. Curtis, he's like, nobody can do it for me. And then he basically challenges her because Marilyn Monroe has sexual prowess in the same way that Michael Jordan plays basketball. I was and, thinking of the same thing. Oh and yeah? <laughs> how was I think why was I thinking about Michael Jordan during the scene? But I'm like, she is running the table like Michael Jordan runs the court. She just knows how to do this. Right. Well, and and the the only weird thing about it is that like well, I, maybe that's what makes this scene so brilliant is that she doesn't know that she's being coached to do this because he's lying to her. Right. And and so she keeps kissing him and trying to like lay different kinds of kisses on him. And she's just like, did that do anything for you? And he's like, no, my, my penis is as soft as when the elevator (laughs) arrow is on one. And, and, um, he slowly convinces her like basically every time she goes back into a kiss, we keep cutting back and forth to Jack lemon tangoing with Osgood. And, Every time we cut back to him, he's just like, ooh, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit. And then, um, like, he's he's so happy because she's awakened his sexual feelings. And he's said that, you know, if the first person to do this, uh, he's going to marry right away. Because nobody, not any doctors, not any psychiatrists, not any other women have been able to arouse his... They never say sexual, like, needs or urges, but that's basically what it is. Right. 
what we need a name for this though. It's like, well, it's the trauma. It's the trauma, or it's no. It's I the, dare you to light my fire. <laughs> or the what's the nurse who feels bad for her patient and falls in love with them? The well, the, Flor- the, Flor- Florence, well, the Florence Nightingale is not that. That's when you fall in love with your nurse who saved you, right? No, she falls in love with you because she pities you so much. It's what is that? Is that back true? The, it's Back to the Future when Lorraine Baines falls in love with Crispin Glover because he got hit by a car. So, so basically, the um, the very sexual character that Marilyn Monroe is playing because she just gets really hot for um, people that she knows aren't good for her that play saxophone. Yeah, um, she sees him and she's like, "Oh, you haven't had sex before." Well, I feel so bad about that. I got to make it happen. Is that what you're saying? I mean, in a manner of speaking. So can we call her, can we call this trope like Marilyn Nightingale? I know there's, there's Marilyn Nightingale. I like it. Is it, is it the best we can do? I think for now we'll, we'll, we'll just, we'll just sit on Marilyn Nightingale. Hey, uh, listeners, if you have a better idea, write in. Yeah. So do they, they, do they, or don't they is my question. They do. Do they? Didn't they? Well, okay. So at one point in time, she says that he was a perfect gentleman well, to her friends. He could be very gentle with her. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, she is looking for, as she says, a gentleman. And people with glasses generally are gentlemen. Um, they basically don't show them having sex, but they Because it's 1959. Do. It's 1959, and the censors were hot on their ass. Uh, they were basically in the middle of... Um, was was that like Eisenhower right there? Uh, not. Uh, uh, please hold. Yeah, who was? Yeah, it was Eisenhower before JFK, right? Regardless, it was it was censor. It was Eisenhower. Yes, it was censor extravaganza era, and they they get back to the stairs, and there's this thing where like they have a, a whole bit about how she used to give out kisses to raise money for the milk fund. <laughs> I didn't know if that was uh, an analogy for her being a prostitute at one point in time. I didn't know what the milk fund was. It probably isn't. It's probably much more innocent than that. But um, he was saying that he raised like $8 million for the fund this evening, or she did. <laughs> yeah. And so you got to suspect that they totally had sex. They boinked. Uh, and meanwhile, Jack Lemon was proposed to by uh, whatever. Osgood. Osgood. And it's really excited because, you know, he will basically get money because he'll marry him and then divorce him and then get a settlement and then they'll never be poor again, which we saw. They were desperately poor at the beginning of this movie. So we can see why he doesn't want to be poor. Would you feel bad about him doing that to Osgood after like how we meet Osgood? I think Osgood is kind of a fool and, you know... Maybe, maybe the more, most aware person in the movie, as we'll get to when we talk about the end. He might, right. Osgood might be the one on the up and up over anybody. I think, I think he may be. Um, he, he's been divorced seven times. Um, yeah. So what's another, what's an eighth for him, you know, honestly? Yeah. What's an eighth? Yeah. Um, but then they, they realize that they have to get out of town and uh, they realize this because the mobsters show up for the Italian opera. <laughs> I, I love, I love, I love, love this, this writing duo of, um, of Wilder and what's the uh, IAL. What's, what's his last name? Diamond. Diamond. 
they they're so funny. Like they they're in town in Florida for an Italian opera appreciation convention, right? Which is just like you couldn't not hide the fact that you're in the mafia if you went to this. <laughs> it's the it's mobster so, convention. It's basically yeah. And uh, they're in town, and so they're chasing them all around, and they're changing in and out of um, costumes. And then, you know, Tony Curtis has to break up with Marilyn because he's like, I got to get out of town. Um, And I think there's something about him, maybe we don't see this in the movie, that feels a little bit bad about lying to her. Right. But he confesses. He confesses. He's like, I I was lying. And, you know, later in the, in the film. Yeah. At the end of the movie where we're at. um, And he's like, you're, you're a beautiful soul. I love you. You know, I'm, I'm trash. I lied to you. Go, go live a happy life. He escapes and Marilyn chases after him. She's like, no, I love you. I'm a dummy. Uh I guess I'll just go for you. And it's like, Hey man, if you love's love, (laughs) if you can forgive him, forgive his foibles, that's great. Well, he doesn't even confess to her until they're in the boat. Uh, well, no, he kisses her and like outs himself and like. Well, well, actually, I don't know about that because, and we'll we'll talk about this when we we're, we're talking more about the queer aspects of this film. But um, I am not a hundred percent convinced that she, like, she didn't realize he was the one kissing her at first. Right. It's like uh, Josephine goes up to to kiss her, and then. Mm-hmm. And then after the kiss, I think I I I remember her realizing that Josephine was not who she said she was, and she realizes that it's Joe, and not that she knows that his name is Joe, but that <laughs> it's a guy playing Josephine, and she's like, "What?" I don't think she realizes it until after he leaves, because she she like kisses him, and then he leaves, and then she like has that realization. Either way, she figures yeah. she does understand that Josephine mm-hmm. is Joe. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but like basically, they get away from the mobsters. The, there's this big cake killing scene. There's a lot of references to like Scarface and, yeah. uh, you know, a bunch of older, old mobster films. And uh, then, yeah, we're out. And then we get to the last line of the movie as all four Osgood, Jack Lemon, Tony Curtis, and Marilyn Monroe are all sailing off into the moonset. Yes, and so Jack Lemon's like, I can't marry you because you know I'm I'm X, I'm finicky. He's like, it's cool. I, I drink all the time. I forgive you. I smoke. <laughs> Who cares? And Jack Lemon's like, ah, fuck it. I'm a man. And Osgood says, Well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yep, and that's our smash cut to the end. And what a way to go out as a movie. Yeah. Wow. What, Ryan, um, since we've gotten to this point, um, just before we get to trope talk, can we just talk about a little bit of like, did you like this movie? Yeah, I did. <laughs> well, yes, I did. Well, yeah, why, why? Yes, I did like this film. So the first time I watched it, I think it was in college. I remember this being one of the DVDs that Professor Oakland gave me. Ryan, watch uh, this. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Um, and I was You're like, going to love this movie. I was like, yes, this was good. And I liked it. And I think there is some reputation to it that it is an overrated film because it was voted like the greatest comedy of all time at one point. And- it's it's on AFI's top 100 is like number 14. Yeah, and I think this is a really solid film, but I wouldn't call I wouldn't put it in the top 100 funniest films of all time. I would maybe call it 
capital C comedy, like a great comedy, the way that Much Ado About Nothing is a great comedy. But sure. I'm not laughing a lot during this movie, but I do enjoy its humor. And the filmmaking is solid. It's got, like from a director's point of view, wonderfully directed because the actors are great and there's just fantastic shots and sequences and everything's really well done. But I would say real solid, everybody. Love it. I loved it as well. I I think Billy Wilder's hand as director, he was nominated for best director. Should I think he should have won. From the acting to the writing to the... Really, I I do think that this film is humorous, and I found myself laughing more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. Um, Have out you loud, seen it before but, this time? So no, I'd only seen it in bits and pieces. Uh-huh. I think I'd seen most of it that I had seen on um, like a seen it trivia game, right? Uh, but I uh, the jokes the jokes that landed that were funny were all were all witty. Yeah. And or like Tony Curtis reacting kind of Tony yeah. Curtis reacts is one of my new favorite SNL sketches. Oh, yeah. He's he's so good. <laughs> I think I don't know why we don't talk about Tony Curtis as much as we talk about Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Maybe because they had such long They had longer of a careers, career. I think. But yeah. you know, this is this is diamonds. It's great. But I don't think it's I think this is one of the most iconic movies. I think it's Ever. iconic and I think it's super subversive yeah. and for the time. And I think that that allows it to stand on like these very, very long legs from, from where, where it opened, even though it's not one of the greatest movies ever made. I think the reason why it persists is because it's really good. Plus it did more outside the movie. Yeah. And I just kind of, you know, to people who haven't seen it yet, I'm, I want to say, don't go in expecting something with the caliber of Wizard of Oz, Citizen Kane, or Seven Samurai, because the fact that it's like 14 on AFI's top 100, I'm like, that's a little overvaluing it in the sense of what these other films are doing. But I well, was, yeah, and every every film you said is an epic, right? Yeah, and and this movie isn't necessarily epic; it's just great. Yeah. So don't expect it to be life changing as a film, but you know, I think you and I are pretty much in cahoots that this is fantastic film. And not to say that this film couldn't be life changing for anybody. Cause I bet, I, I bet there are quite a few people out there that watch this and we're just like, you know what? I'm discovering a little bit about myself right now. Well, you know, that's the thing. It's like when you say, Oh, my favorite movie is citizen Kane that says nothing about who you are. Like, I don't know no, what to do with that. When you say something like, Oh, my favorite movie is wizard of Oz. It's like, what else do you like? Cause everyone likes wizard of Oz. But when you say sure. some like it hot's my favorite movie, it's like, Oh, interesting. Why? And like, you can actually get some personality from that. That's yeah. more fun. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, you know, and on on that note, let's bring it on over to Trope Talk. You want to take a break? Yes. And we're back with some Trope Talk. It's like Dope Talk. Just say no. <laughs> Wait, you don't want him to listen to Trope Talk? I, I mean, no, say yes. Say yes to Trope Talk, but no to Dope Talk. Yeah, um... <laughs> Friends help friends say no to dope talk, <laughs> but but a hell yeah to trope talk, and our tr- and, and also a hell yeah to dope talk. No, no dope talk. Bad no, no, dope like, talk. Like I'm thinking dope is in that's dope. That's dope as hell. Speaking of dope as hell, we're going to talk about our trope, and today's trope is cross dressing. Cross dressing. 
great quest dressing in the movies. <laughs> this movie just reminded me how long it's been since I've been to a drag brunch. <laughs> right. I've never gotten to go to a drag brunch. Did you go they in Atlanta? Like, no, I didn't go in Atlanta. There's quite a few drag places to go in Atlanta and they're still open right now because everything's open in Atlanta. Um, but the, like in Portland, gosh, in Portland, our, our like mainstay been open for like years and years and years, uh, Darcel's closed down. Right. Um, but there's, there's quite a few places that do like drag brunch or drag, um, story time, drag story time, drag. There's, um, uh, who poison waters does, uh, an Oscar show that is, right. yeah. <laughs> is both fun, but also she's a little, She's a little much for my Oscar like watching parties because right. she'll talk over the the people doing the Oscars and do her like do her really entertaining thing. But I'm like, I wanted to hear what they said because I'm such a snob. <laughs> so cross dressing, you know, I don't know the total origins of it, but you know, society got to a point where men dressed one way and women dressed another way, and you know, people started to rebel at that pretty quickly. Uh, and the biggest example we see of it is with Shakespeare, right? Where, I mean, uh, they're, they're both contextually, I would say, like, if we want to deconstruct it, both there are plays like Twelfth Night or As You Like It, where characters are dressing up as mainly men dressing up as women or women dressing up as men. Um, that, that is just the, the only options back then um, as far as gender norms were perceived. But if we want to, like, take it an extra step further, men were the only people acting in in Shakespeare's um, theater, yes. uh, Shakespeare, Ben Johnson, any any of the theaters back then. And so men would be playing the roles of women as well. Yep. And Elizabethan Eklund, Elizabeth, Eliza, Eliza, Eliza Doolittle? Liza, in Liza's England. <laughs> in Elizabethan England, women were not allowed on the stage. Yeah. There's actually a really good movie about this where uh, a woman, I'm, I got a, I, I can't remember what it's called. It's like um, Shakespeare and in, in love, or no, no, no. Oh, well, I'm never gonna find it because it's just all she's the man coming up. Um, but basically, it's it's a play about a woman who really wants to act on the stage, and so she cross dresses as a man in order to act in Shakespeare's um, troupe. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good play. It's about, and it also deals with like sexuality because uh one of the characters she falls in love with um is by at, at the time and i i can't remember what the movie is listeners if you know the movie please write in it's it's pretty fantastic shakespeare in love no it's not shakespeare in, i don't even think it's about shakespeare i think he's just like a character in the he's movie just there and what's fun when you you know get to do that academic study of uh shakespeare and you know the time that they were doing it is when look at Twelfth Night, which is about a woman who has to cross-dress as a man to... I can't remember the plot, but I just remember that's what is going on. There's a shipwreck that happens at the beginning. That it's a man playing a woman who has to dress up as a man. And to make that convincing on stage just sounds so much fun. Yeah, it sounds complicated in a good way. Yeah. Logistically, what this takes care of in literature and film and on the stage is... Lots of stuff. It points out, like, what are the norms? And let's take a look at why these are the norms. Should they be the norms? What kind of comedy and drama comes from all of these things being the norms? And it's just a really good way to critique how we as society have become like, like, it feels like it's looking at all the ruts in the road that the wheels have made and been like, 
are, are all these ruts necessary for our wheels? Right. And it makes me think about, you know, if we look at the movie tonight's movie, for example, there, the, the thing that's going on is that there's an all woman band because there are circumstances where it's just safer to have just, just all women band instead of an all men band. I'm, I'm imagining that they think the all men band would be more rowdy than an all women band, but like we see the women act together and they're like, that's fucking (laughs) bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. And I I love the, um, the orchestra. What's her name? Like smart Sue. Um, sweet Sue, sweet Sweet Sue, Sue. sweet Sue. She's, um, she like when she signs off for the night once she's like, all of my, um, all of my players are virtuosos and I want them to stay that way. Yeah. And like kind of pointing out that like she wants everybody to think that they're virgins and it's obvious from meeting all these women that that's definitely not the case. Yeah. And they're, ex- they're you know, there's the expectation that the all women band adheres to this kind of moral clause where we don't see, I mean, we meet these guys working in a gin joint. So, you know, of course they're not going to be holding themselves to any kind of moral clause in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't can't recall when I'm watching a, a story about an all male band where their their fearless leader says, uh, "We're all being virtuous, correct? We're all mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody drinking." Also, um, like they have like this male chaperone who's like watching over them, Mister Peabody. Yeah, who who and it's just it's just another way this movie like makes fun of the fact that like why is this guy even here? He doesn't do anything. Like she like the. Um, sweet Sue always calls to him and is like, you have to come take care of this. And he's like, rumble, 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 rumble. But we never, ever see him actually take care of any of the issues. Yeah. And we see him get his comeuppance because Tony Curtis basically robs him and takes his suitcase so he can dress up as the rich <laughs> yeah, right. shell tycoon. Uh, are What are some other movies that deal with this? You know, we see it a lot in Shakespeare, but what are some other movies from cinema that, that have this as a plot point? Well, let's see. Uh, I mean, Tu Wong Fu, we've already brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big see. one is Tootsie, which... Tootsie. Well, Tootsie, Tootsie just kind of steals all of its ideas from this movie. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, and Tootsie, Tootsie does this, does the thing where, like, this this movie, there's a lot of men who are, um, who have, who make a lot of unwanted advances on them. Mm-hmm. Like there's this bellhop that won't leave Josephine alone and, um, Osgood won't leave Daphne alone. And it's the movies in, in the classic Wilder way is kind of, kind of getting at the fact that men are, are like this a lot and holding up a mirror to society, which is what this, you know, what comedy does best. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't, hit the nail on the head because he doesn't ever have like them have a discussion where they're like, men are the worst. Maybe we should rethink how we act towards women. Uh, what Jack Lemon says actually is, gosh, I really want to go back to the other side of things so that we can be gross again. Yeah. Which is more telling. It's more yeah. telling for him to just be plainly honest instead of enlightened. Exactly. And I think that's what makes this movie better is like, we, we, we don't necessarily see, the characters go through this huge arc and change and become way better people. They're just still the people that they are, which feels a little bit more honest. Um, it's weird that Tony Curtis is behaving this way at the beginning of the movie with this, um, the secretary and he's sweet talking to her and we can tell that he's a cad and you know, he, he gets sweet talked by this bellboy, but the bellboy just, you know, is, is no match for, 
Joe or Josephine, and he's mm-hmm. not really like ever getting fed humble pie, and he never eats crow. Yeah, I was I was really wanting him or Osgood, somebody, some of these, some of these. M- some of these horrible men to get their comeuppance, but there is none of that. Yeah, and so that's what Tootsie does all over the place, is that Mm -hmm. Dustin Hoffman's character is kind of a player, and then he kind of, you know, really gets the full female experience and realizes how hard it is for women. And, you know, what's weird about that movie is, like, it's kind of saying you will never understand what it's like unless you, like, go through it. And it's like, well, I watched this movie and I got a little bit enlightened. <laughs> like, if I sure. watch some like it hot, I don't actually have to do what Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis do to learn their lesson. I can still, mm-hmm. I've been given the equipment to empathize with the female experience a little bit. The odd thing that I always think about in Tootsie, and we'll get more into it when we watch that movie one day, is that like a woman hadn't been this successful in this world that they create until a man does it was her. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's my one quibble with that film, but it's, I think it's a brilliantly made movie otherwise, but I think there's more if in some like it hot, it feels more like a story though. I feel like Tootsie is trying to educate you and that has its nobility and it has Mm -hmm. its value. But I think Mm -hmm. that's why some like it hot is ranked superior above Tootsie. I Mm -hmm. think there's something correct in that regard where it's like, it's more of a, just a, a fun story where, we don't even realize that we've learned, you know, valuable lessons. We don't even realize that we've gotten a, a lesson of in empathy. It's just kind of happened indirectly. And I think that's the more Which powerful. are the more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Look, look, look at the simpatico. Um, and then, I mean, other ones I can think of are, um, oh, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Sure. Um, Sure. If you want to go like, if you want to stretch that comedy bubble, where's more ones with uh, women dressing up as men besides she's the man, which is again, another Shakespeare. I wanted to try to move away from Shakespeare. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's just backing up the claim that Shakespeare is the origin point for all storytelling or modern oh, storytelling. There's the, uh, the Butler. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. No, Albert Nobbs. Well. Albert Nobbs is what you're thinking of. Albert Nobbs is the one. Glenn yeah, Close you. playing a man. Oh, and Glenn mm-hmm. Close playing a man in Hook. Mm. She plays the pirate that gets put in the boo box. The boo box. The boo box. Yeah. The boo box. <laughs> the boo box. <laughs> and oh, oh, like, I mean, we could also do um, it's uh Oh, what is what is the Bob Dylan movie where it's uh, they're he's played by like seven different people? Right, we have Kate Blanchett playing mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, and you know, I think in all these examples where it's men playing women, it's whether it's really indirect, like some like it hot, or super direct, like Tootsie, they're like learning how terrible they've been and how hard it is for women. But they are a stand-in for men. But I, and when it's a women playing men. There's something not as it's not the same thing. It's there's something else going on to it. I yeah, like with with sh- I, I mean, it's all the other men in the the movie learning a lesson about how. I mean, a lot of this is about men learning lessons because when I I it's been a while since I've seen She's the Man, but she basically can't accomplish what she wants to accomplish unless she passes as a guy. Right. And it's like showing like, I'm equal to you in mind, body and spirit, but you just don't treat me. So when I am myself. Yeah. And I think for those stories, it's just saying, you know, 
confirmed men really are privileged <laughs> yeah because uh-huh. uh-huh. they don't because there's there's not as much to to worry about there's not as many pressures there's not as many expectations there's there's so many more free passes for dudes and there's so many more bars for women and i think what that's what those movies that's what those show yeah that sounds about right um and now i think let's segue from from just the cross-dressing aspect to what it reveals about our characters in this film. Right. So Jack Lemmon, he's he's really buddy-buddy with Tony Curtis, for one. And who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't mm-hmm. be Tony Curtis? He really is excited by yeah. Marilyn Monroe. As soon, as soon as he... Well, he's really excited about Marilyn Monroe, but he's extremely excited about this job of dressing up as um, women it was in order his, to get this job. He came up with that idea really quick, really quickly. He just had it in his back pocket. It was like, Hey, you know, we could dress up as women. It's like, yes, we, we could do that. I guess we could do that. Yeah. I got our clothes at my house. <laughs> like, yeah. He's like, actually I have a closet full of them. You know, I wonder if they remade that movie, they just leaned into that of all these like really, really subtle things about his character and just be like, uh-huh. okay, let's just, let's just say it. Yeah. Like, like what if, what if he, like if you, if we rewrote this movie for the modern day, he was actually um, a queen who, you know, just like didn't share that with his friends. Cause he was kind of, and like that side of his life, he kept separate from his actual like straight life. Right. And by straight, I don't mean that like that says anything about his sexuality, but his more square life, I guess. Okay. Let's rewrite the movie. You write your first draft with your heart and you rewrite with your head. So what I think I would like to see is the more, this feels weird to say it like this, but a more comic version of the Danish girl. If you follow, Whoa. if you follow, um, in, well, no, because one's a trans story, right, just, In particular, no, no, I know, I know. Just follow okay. me down this rabbit hole. I'll, I'll follow you down this weird road we're going. <laughs> what was interesting about the Danish girl is that you know we see Eddie Redmayne, his character living in Denmark. Something awakens in him when he is, um, you know, trained on these uh, women's clothes and sees something in himself that he never saw before, mm-hmm. and, and starts this mm-hmm. kind of journey. Mm-hmm. I think you could do a similar thing for Jack Levin's character and not nearly as dramatic a trans narrative like that, but just something of like, you know, I always wanted, I was always fascinated by, you know, this aspect of femininity and of myself. Yeah. And I never that got to, I didn't realize was a part of myself. I never got to express it. And it's just mm-hmm. been, I've been looking for a way to deal with it. And like the fact that he just jumps on this idea of like, let's dress up as women is just yeah. like something that could have been a, a much bigger launching pad for him that I, I really would have liked to get a scene with Jack Lemon looking at himself in the mirror and just and loving smiling. it and just yeah. really loving it. Yeah. And that's the thing we see Jack Lemon in the rest of this movie when he's playing, uh, what's, what's Daphne. Daphne. He's having a ball. He loves it. He loves being Daphne. Mm-hmm. He's on the beach. They're dancing around. He's frolicking. He's just he's just having a great time. And we we don't know too much about him at first. We we know that he's kind of a pushover because he lets Tony Curtis like like run all over him, and he's he's always doing that thing that people in the twenties do, where they're like, I don't know how you get me into these messes. Yeah, and and I I think he ha- he feels a a power and a 
a trueness in himself with Daphne that we don't really see as much with him as Gerald. Yeah, I think he gets to be more of himself as Daphne. Mm-hmm. And I think that says something um, dr- drastically about his identity. Yeah. He meets he meets Osgood. Uh-huh. And, you know, Osgood is sniffing up Daphne's skirt. Oh, for sure. He, he, is, he is a dog in heat. And so it doesn't matter who you are and what you're into. That's not cool. Like, back off, man. No. <laughs> you know? Even if... <laughs> I mean, maybe if Marilyn Monroe was doing that to to you, maybe you wouldn't be so... Well, yeah, but it would be consensual. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he was not consenting at the moment, and he was not into it. And so, you know, he gives Osgood the what, you know, what for. Mm-hmm. But he goes to the dance with Osgood. They tango right. On- all night. Yeah, and we keep cutting back to their their tangoing with a bunch of other people. They're tangoing with a rose in their mouth, and you kind of at first see that Jack Lemon isn't as into this as he could be. But as each scene progresses, he's having more and more fun. So much fun that he brings the maracas home. Yeah, and he's <laughs> and the, ecstatic okay. that he got mm-hmm. proposed to. He's ecstatic, mm-hmm. and yeah. his cover story is well, yeah, because he's rich, and uh-huh. we're gonna get married, and I'm gonna get divorced, and with the money, it's it's all cool. Well, I'll go back to you know the life that I've been living. And he's they keep talking about how like things wouldn't hold up in court um, when they're talking about like like at one point in time, Tony Curtis is like, it doesn't work like that. Like it wouldn't hold like. It's he basically comes out. He says everything, but gay marriage is illegal, right? Um, and uh, like they, like in Jack Lemon's head, he's he's like, oh, I'll just divorce this guy once he finds out I'm a man. And it's like, no, that guy would take you to court and be like, this guy's a dude, unless he wanted to keep it hushed up or something like that. They don't get into any of like the drama of what it would create. But Jack Lemon is so happy that he's just not even thinking about that. Right, and I, I, I do like the formal symmetry that the film achieves at this point, and this has nothing to do with anything in terms of like the gender politics it's dealing with. It's just that Jack Lemon is impersonating one person and falls in with a rich person who wants to marry him, her, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of you know how they see it, and then Tony Curtis is impersonating a a rich man and mm-hmm. gets you know, Marilyn Monroe to fall in love with him so that she thinks that they can get married. And there's this, that symmetry of those four characters is really interesting. And even she is the only person who's being himself the most is Osgood because even (laughs) Marilyn Monroe in a certain respect is she's always hiding like her drinks. And she, as soon as, she meets Tony Curtis's uh, junior character. She's like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, you know, preppy girl who went to a nice college and I'm like well-educated and, you know, I, I went to cotillion and stuff and, and like, so everybody is being somebody that they're not in order to get maybe what they want. But I think what Tony Curtis really appreciates about Marilyn, and I think this is why he is justified in his true deep attraction to her, not just having the hots for her, is that she's transparent. He sees her for who she is, and he loves that. I think he also sees himself in her, because when he sees her lying about who she is, like, you know, I, I think he's attracted to that part of her who is not unlike him. Yeah. Because I think she is most herself when she's in front of um, when she's in front of Josephine, mm-hmm. when she's talking to him in the car. But then when she sees this like millionaire that she wants to snatch up, she starts making up a whole bunch of stuff about herself. 
Yeah. And then let's, we like, we have that moment where um, Josephine kisses um, Marilyn Monroe and, or Sh- Sugar Cane. We haven't even said her name this whole time. Right. Her name's Sugar Cane. And uh, like Marilyn is, she, she doesn't like do that like back away thing or the like, whoa, what's going on here? She's just like, oh, I'm sad and I really needed that. Right. And, and so Sugarcane's like, yeah, Josephine, I like it when you kiss me. And oh, you're Joseph at some point. <laughs> I don't know if it, mm-hmm. we, we still need to confirm whether it's in the moment or, or later. But you're right that she doesn't lurch back by being kissed by this other woman. Yeah. Also says something and, to, to that queerness, to that to that relationship. Yeah. And to like maybe maybe uh, some history or some some feelings that Marilyn's character has. And so that, then they're all on the boat. And um, when that famous last line comes from Osgood, where he says, nobody's perfect. I think that, I mean, that very clearly to me states that, oh, Osgood is by like Osgood is totally, or like, you know, pan or, or whatever his, yeah. like, I don't want to put a label on him cause I don't know, but he is at least completely fine marrying Jack Lemon. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody's perfect. You, another way you could put it is fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's said with the cadence of fine by me. <laughs> yeah, and Jack Lemon is just kind of <laughs> the movie kind of ends and he's just kind of like, well, I'm out of excuses. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I you, you don't really know whether Jack Lemon would or would not go through with it, but you do know that he's like he's not 100% against this idea. And so there's I think this movie is just such a spectrum of sexuality. Yeah, cuz in in the parlance of 1959. There's kind of a a a Q aspect it's just a questioning of like I don't think Jack Lemon in this movie knows what he wants but I think this is mm-hmm. his great adventure and exploration and the fact that he never really pushes back against this scheme where he has to be kind of seducing Osgood is part of that like well I'm actually curious I would like to know so sure yeah. I'll I'll help you Tony Curtis I'll help you I'll help he's you more, back Marilyn more- Monroe I think he's he he's like obviously way into Marilyn Monroe. I think he's very competitive with Tony Curtis as well, and then he's also you know likes the attention of Mister Osgood. And he's uh, you're right. This is kind of the beginning of his beautiful adventure that we don't really get. But. Yeah, and you know when he looks at Marilyn Monroe, he's like, look at that, like Jello on Springs or something. <laughs> but he says it in a way as if he were jealous because he says it when right. they're tr- they're failing spectacularly at passing and they're just like oh yes. this sucks we don't know how to walk in heels we don't know how to do this and marilyn just glides past them and she is the most glamorous feminine personhood in 1950s and in this movie and yep. for for jack lemon he's like that i want that i either want to have that or i want to be that i'm not quite sure in what order i bet he would want to do both right mm-hmm. which is fascinating yeah it is this movie is absolutely fascinating i know that so many more people have written essays upon essays on this and we're just touching the surface of it but but hey i loved it happy pride month yeah. everybody <laughs> oh yeah this is perfect i don't know how we did that ah oh. Now, Um, one question I have for you. Did Osgood see through Jack Lemmon's um, facade immediately or was was he tricked? I think I I, I don't know. Um, That's hard to tell. Like um, I you could either write it in your head that he found that out in the elevator when he. (laughs) Yeah. Pinched the button. There was something else there. Yeah. Or or it could be that he didn't find it out until that 
like moment or, you know, who knows? There's, or I mean, they were dancing awfully close. Like it's hard to get away with not rubbing certain parts right. against people when you're that close. And you know, um, the answer I think is it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think that's the most important part. It just doesn't matter. The, the other biographical thing that is totally conjecture, but it's my headcanon and I'm sticking to it, is Billy Wilder was in Germany in the 20s making movies, writing screenplays. Mm-hmm. Germany in the 20s, the Weimar era, super liberal era, uh, yep. pre, pre-Nazism, extremely liberal. It was like, I don't know, they were just super free about sexuality, that there were gay clubs, there was sex clubs, they were just doing lots of stuff. I mean, that's, that's when, is that when Cabaret is set? Yeah, I think so. Or some, yeah. something to that effect. Uh, akin to that. Um, and I think, I think this movie, you know, Billy Wilder had to flee Germany because of the Nazis and, you know, you made movies in Hollywood, so it worked out for him, but. He had to change his name from Billy Wilder to Billy Wilder. <laughs> yeah. So this movie feels kind of like a fuck you to Nazism, which, you know, totally, mm outlawed homosexuality, outlawed queerness, you know, outlawed any kind of behavior that was, you know, sexually provocative like that. And this movie is just kind of like, fuck, fuck, fuck all of that. I, and I think it's, it's more a fuck that to like America's 1950s as well to like the, the standardization of the family unit. Yeah. And you know, the things yeah. that we're picking up on, a lot of it is just kind of headcanon because the audience in the 1950s, they weren't thinking of any of this stuff that we've talked about. They're not thinking about these identity things for Jack Lemmon. They just think it's shtick. And that's, mm-hmm. they, you know, that's why it well, didn't. And the brilliant thing is, 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 is both. Yeah. And, like that's, that's how it's pulled off. And that's why it didn't get censored because you're right. It is both. And you have to kind of look for the underneath. You have to kind of look for like the deeper identity stuff that's going on, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's, again, that's why this is on the top 100 list. I also think this is a moviegoers movie. Like, um, you know, there's, there's people in this film that play gangsters and other movies playing gangsters. And like, like, you know, the, uh, the scene where he almost like smashes the, um, the grapefruit into the other guy's face. That's, that's a direct pull from, um, public enemy where, um, Oh yeah. He smashes it. Does smash it. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so there's a lot of that. And I think Hollywood is, is very, you know, ready to be like, Good job, good job, good job. I get that reference. I get that reference. Yeah. I get that reference. Well, that's the, I mean, we're like that. That's what's great about Billy Wilder is that he has such an eclectic career that he has film noirs like Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. but he's got comedies like uh, The Apartment, which is not really a comedy. It's very depressing, but yeah, nonetheless, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not really a comedy. It's not really a romance. It's just a drama. But still, uh, but for some reason, they always call it a romantic comedy. Still, he he mm. has wildly varied tastes, and mm, nice, and he has the ability to have a really awesome car chase in this movie that just needs to be a comedy. Man, the car chase was so cool. Like there were, there were stunt performers hanging off the outside of those cars when they were spinning around. Yeah. Well, speaking of virtuoso filmmaking, Kelly, I got to ask, would you give it a Rob Very good. I felt like you... You were dressing up as me right there. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that felt good. I don't know. Uh, best Oscar. I want to say, I think I want to give this movie um, best hair and makeup. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the way that 
I like everybody's makeup from um, from our our cross dressing couple to to Marilyn Monroe. It was just it was all good, and I I just think the makeup department deserves a an A plus on this one. Um, it's just I mean, especially I almost want to just say best good best job putting on makeup quickly, <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I gosh, I. I wanted to give it best writing, um, but I, I think the makeup was so artfully done in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent choice. What about you? I'm definitely going with best direction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sequences like the car chase, which don't have to be great, are great. And there's all these great shots, like when the women pile into Jack Lemon's bunk bed, there's this great shot where all these legs are just hanging out. Yeah, and Tony Curtis yeah. is like, what the? is going on and that's that's when jack lemon's head pokes out and he gets dragged back in yeah he's like i didn't do this <laughs> and there's this great synecdoche of the the part for the whole where these legs are representing mm. these women and it's just it's when film has the opportunity to be film just doing really yeah. visual storytelling and it's very poetic isn't it we have this other shot where they arrive in florida and all the old rich dudes are in their rocking chairs and it's just a <laughs> chorus line of them just like hum, hum, hum. and it looks at one point in time it looks like they're dancing when all the yeah. women are like walking up the steps because they just keep taking their hats off mm-hmm. and taking their hats off it looks like they're in a can-can line it's really weird because if it was another director trying to do that, it could be too perfect or too sloppy. Or too showy. Yeah. And it just, it fits and it's believable. You buy what you're looking at on screen and it still feels intentional. I think one of Wilder's greatest traits is he doesn't call attention to himself. Like he is, he's doing things expertly, but he's not like, like an Alfonso Caron where he's like, look at this really cool camera trick I'm doing. And I want to really immerse you in this and feel the moment. He's just like, no, no, no. I'm going to be brilliant by being subtle. Yeah. And brilliant, you know, brilliant filmmaking choices made in this movie help the story along. Whereas Quaron's like, I did it in one shot. It's like, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this movie I want to bring up during trip talk. Uh, Wing Chun. Mm-hmm. is a movie starring Michelle Yeoh, directed by Ewan Wu-Ping, who is the action choreographer on The Matrix and Kill Bill. But that movie was made in the 90s. Uh, Michelle Yeoh was Miss Malaysia. She's gorgeous. But in that movie, she plays a a warrior who defends her town, and she doesn't cross-dress, but she is a she dresses like a tomboy in this like you know medieval Chinatown. And her old childhood friend mistakes her for a boy the entire movie and it takes him a whole movie to realize that Michelle Yeoh is actually a girl and they fall in love but uh I'd love to see that's that. just another great example of Michelle Yeoh being a goddess <laughs> but but that's you know when you when you have someone like uh, Jackie Chan or Michelle Yeoh and you're doing something that's really complicated that only they could do then you're going to take the time to get that shot because who else can do what Jackie Chan does who else can do what Michelle Yeoh does and Marilyn Monroe well, is basically the Jackie Chan of being gorgeous yeah of of being gorgeous and she is an icon. She is she's the Marilyn Monroe of being Marilyn Monroe. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Ryan, speaking of Marilyn Monroe, who would you fall in love with in this movie? Are there any circumstances in which uh, the two of you might be more than just good friends? The truth of it is, I loved you from the first second I met you. But mostly, I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. 
Not even at all. You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, I love, I love you. I know. I want to fall in love with Tony Curtis, but he's such a cad that I don't want to reward that behavior. No, me neither. But he is charming I, as hell. He is he is charming, but I I also think that he's he, his junior character. I wouldn't fall in love with his junior character. No, 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 no. But no, but if I was his best friend and watched him do that, I would be like, uh, you. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I'd roll my eyes at him, and I would keep any woman I cared about away from yeah. him. But yeah, <laughs> and Jack Lemon is just too much energy for me. I think he's. You know, if that's him having fun, that I, I I can't keep up with that. You know, I just couldn't. Right. It's too much energy. I'm really glad, really happy for he's, you. But he's very excitable. Yeah, mm-hmm. just can't can't keep up. So, sorry, that just leaves me with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I am right there with you. She she's um, the best. I really wanted to say Jack Lemon, but I'm just happy for him. And I was trying to think of there are a couple other ladies on the train that seemed cool. But it definitely wouldn't be. I like that trombone player. Uh, she can blow. That trombone player was issues funny. She can blow. Did you? She can. Wow. Really? Really? Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Sorry. I really like how she extended the the end of her trombone back and forth all those times. Mm-hmm. But um, the the uh, J- Joe E. Is it Joe E. Brown? Is that his name? Yeah, Joe E. Brown. Um, he has this smile that really creeps me out. Yes. Like I, I, I couldn't go past one date with him he might be, he could be the nicest guy in the world, but I couldn't get past his smile. No. <laughs> and I could get past Marilyn's because I mean, I wouldn't even have to get past it. It would just suck me in. Yeah. Oh, Ooh. well, after what we just said, I, that was unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Marilyn Monroe for both of us. Can we high five over <laughs> Skype here? I'm so <laughs> excited that you're coming home this week. I know we get to do this in the same room. I'm, I'm in Spokane right now, stopping off to see my parents before I come see you. And, uh, they both say hi, by the way. So, uh, before, oh, hello. I want to say hello back. Um, before we call it a day and we, you know, go, go to bed and, you know, do all the, the nice domestic things. I wanted to tell you the story of the time I went back to the movies after a year and a half. Oh yeah. Talk to me about it. Can I tell you that story, everyone? Yeah. Hey, um, can this be a Ryan's personal letter? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I got my second dose some time ago, and mm-hmm. I got to my um, – okay, I cheated a little. I didn't get to my full two weeks after my second dose, but I'm like, ah, close enough. I can go do something masked. <laughs> sure. Um, people have been doing this all year. I, I want to I jump in finally. <laughs> so And what did you do? So I went to – Sarah was, we were like, me and Sarah were thinking of like, uh, are we going to try and see a movie together? Do we have to get a sitter? How are we going to do this? And Sarah's like, you know what? You go to a movie with yourself and have a really nice time for yourself. Get away from the house. I'll, I'll watch Theo. I want you to just have a really nice time. Ah, uh, nice wife, Sarah. Like, that's really good partner. Really nice. And so I go downtown, you know, I live in the suburbs, so I got to, you know, drive 10 minutes downtown to downtown Portland Sure, sure. And, you know, at first I was going to go to one of these art houses and watch The Truffle Hunters, but it was sold out like hours before. I'm like, that's that's good. I'm glad they're sold out. And so I decided to go to, 
you know, one of the big chain theaters and see Minari from May 24 and, you know, got yeah. Oscar winning Minari. I'm like, oh, I'll check that mm-hmm. out. So I go to the theater, get my can of wine. <laughs> <laughs> was it house wine? Um, yeah, it was like, it was like table white wine. <laughs> no, no, no. House is a brand that like they often serve at oh, uh, theaters. I can't, in... I don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was like white claw, but it was like white wine. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> some, some, some nice wine coolers. Yeah. So, you know, I watched the movie and of course I'm in the smallest auditorium because it's an art house film in the, this multiplex. And so we're stuffed into this theater. I'm like, it doesn't matter. And the first thing I noticed was how much I missed movie theater sound. And yeah. that's because I've been watching movies on headphones for the past year because if we watch it on my home theater, the sound will wake my son up. So I've been watching it on my headphones, which has been nice and immersive. But even a quiet movie like Minari on big movie theater speakers was wonderful. I cannot. I So I, I went and did the same thing, but in uh, I'll, I'll let you get back to your story. This is just going to be quick. Um, I went and saw Mad Max 2 in Atlanta's oldest theater. And Mad Max 2 doesn't have like the greatest sound in the world, but just it's nice and loud it's not only loud it's like hearing sound travel from one side of a theater to another when cars are driving in the distance it just gave me that chill yeah like that cinematic chill yeah (laughs) so keep going and so a movie like minari is a nice quiet drama i'm really glad i watched it in a movie theater because if i watched it at home my phone would be out the whole time and maybe i'm not looking at instagram the entire time but i would not be super focused stop that what are you doing i'm just being honest with you imagine ya. if somebody imagine if somebody did that to your movie i know it's hot it's awful which is why i think you need to see movies in the theater so that you can't even try it's not a thing you just can't do it at all mm-hmm. and so i was really glad i was forced to give it you know my all my attention and my assessment sure. of the movie is it's a good movie. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but it's got great performances. But I don't see myself revisiting it. But oh, if okay. you, I really want if see you can it, see it, but... see it. It's a really nice film. So after that, I was like, now I get to do the other thing I haven't been able to do a year and a half, and that's go to a bar and think about this movie because there's lots to think about and chew on. And sure. I just I missed that that active even when you're by yourself go to a movie by yourself and then go to a bar having a quiet drink to yourself and cogitating over the cinematic some, experience that you had it's kind of the closest thing like i i do some meditation uh besides this but it's the closest thing you and i have to a very consistent meditation yeah and so i was like okay so i'm already downtown so you know let me let me walk over you know to the pearl district where it's kind of nice and see what the bar scene is like these days and see if i can get a nice nice seat at the bar i went from bar to bar and every single bar their bar was closed because of social distancing. They weren't letting people mm-hmm. sit at the bar. The only sure. seating they had were four or eight tops. Oh, okay. <laughs> not not even like little bistro tables where it's like a two top maybe, but it's usually one uh-huh. top. No, it was four or eight tops. And this was a Friday night at nine o'clock. And every bar, and this was like the first day of our restrictions going down a level. And so mm-hmm. res- like capacity went way up for the first time. And every mm-hmm. bar was packed for the COVID era, if that makes sure. sense. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was everyone out with their friends having a fucking ball. <laughs> like they were just <laughs> so happy. Does this story end with you being thrown up on? No, no. Okay. Metaphorically, yes. So I'm going from bar to bar and 
all I'm seeing all these groups of people. I'm like, that's that's nice. And and I just go to every hostess. I'm like, just have seating for one. I just kind of want to you know have a just one a drink by myself. And I went to Teardrop Lounge, which is a really fancy cocktail lounge. Yeah, really fancy. And she's like, um, well, I do have seating over here. And she walks me around and shows me this giant table for ten that's empty. And she's like, I oh the one in the back. Uh, well, they expanded. They expanded into oh, the, oh. the barber shop, so that's twice as big oh, now. Oh, hey. Yeah, the bishops that used to be right <laughs> but there. But the, the, the bar is packed, and she's like, you can sit at this tent top by yourself. <laughs> and she literally said to me, but if that makes you feel uncomfortable, I would understand. And I didn't want to dignify that remark, but I basically said, I'll just look around and come back to you if I want to. <laughs> and so I left, and... I went back downtown, away from the Pearl District scene. If there was another bar where I could just sit by myself and not have to sit at a giant table alone, couldn't mm. find anything. So I was like, fuck it. And I drove up to your neighborhood to 21st. I'm like, I know there's got to be a bar at, on 21st that will have what I'm looking for. Same thing. I look around. All the bars shut down their bar seating, but only have four or eight tops available. So, well, what what about Blue Moon outside? That's Two what tops. I said to myself. I said, "Fuck <laughs> it, let's just go to McMinimins. McMinimins, which is just kind of a McDonald's chain of bars in Oregon." Oh, it's way better than McDonald's. Come it on, is, now. but in terms of like classy bars, it's kind of it's it's really good. I, I go to McMinimins all the time, but I for my first night, but it's out, not classy. Yeah, for my first night out at a bar, it wasn't what I wanted. And so I went to Blue Moon and I saw at their bar just a row of of chairs at their bar. I was like, finally, it's really loud and they're blasting like early aughts rap music and, mm-hmm. you know, sports games are on the sports television and, you know, everyone's being a drunken idiot. But there's seating for me to sit and have a nice drink. And I went and I sat down. The McMinimins bartender comes up, up to me. She's like, what do you want? And I'm like, can I see a drink menu, please? And she throws it at me, literally. And I look over and it's got nothing cocktails on there. So I'm like, you know what? Can I just have a vodka martini? She makes it for me, hands it over, and then gives me the check and says, that's eight bucks. I was like, oh, are are you guys, is this the last call already at like 9.45? And she's like, oh no, there's no seating at the bar. You have to sit somewhere else. And I was like, why are there chairs here? She's like, I don't know, because there are chairs here. And I was like, well, fucking. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of on her side, Ryan. There's, there's, there's no. Why would you put like, the chairs I, there if you can't sit there? No, no, Ryan. It's that they have not moved those chairs in a year and a half. Yeah, because there's no point. No malarkey. Every, no, every uh, other bar who... had moved their chairs. Every other bar had moved their chairs. They could have moved okay, those whatever. chairs. That was really lazy. <laughs> After a year and a half, come on, come on. No, I don't know. Anyway, so I want to be on your side here, but I'm not, but continue. <laughs> be more empathetic. Okay, so I'm so sorry that you weren't able to sit at a bar, but what, what happened after? So then I went and sat at a very conspicuous booth that was in the middle of the restaurant and just felt like a sore thumb on a, on a gashed hand. I downed uh-huh. my martini. I was like, you know what? I'm not letting that lady ruin my night. And so I walked across the street and went to a, a, a classier bar where they only had seating outside, but I knew they had... Was it M bar? Uh, no, it was North 45. And I was like, you know what? I'll just sit in the back and have another martini. And they had kind of a weird bar that, to sit at. And same thing. Place was packed because it was outdoor seating. And so it was just kind of like every square inch was covered with groups of people. Not not dates, but groups, big, big groups of friends. And Ooh. I had to sit at this little kind of makeshift bar where the servers 
gave me my drink and I just sat there by myself fuming over my like botched night and just not even thinking about the movie I'd watched. It was just like the worst outing to a, to a, for a drink in my entire life. And it was the uh, yeah. loneliest I mean, night I had ever had. It's, it's, I mean, I've had way lonelier nights than that, but there's this feeling that you're describing where your whole time is spending trying to achieve something and never achieving it. And so you, the whole night is just kind of a waste because you're not even focused on enjoying the journey. You're just trying to get to the destination. And so the journey just becomes more and more painful. If all it was, was I came out of a movie, walked across the street, went to a bar, had my drink, went home. It would have been perfect if it was, if yeah. it was, if it went off, but it didn't. And it was just like, Kelly, come the fuck home. I'm so sad and lonely. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry. Robin has already assured me that you and I are going to have movie nights this yeah. summer. So it's something that we're going to make some time for, my friend. How about we say this? For your poor, 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 poor night, we just need to do a redo. Yes, we do. And so this 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 will be some something where maybe we'll go out on a weeknight. Mm-hmm. And we just go out when there's not like a crazy amount of people. I just out want to we'll... go to the bar where I was sad and lonely and just have the same servers and just have my arm around you the whole time and just kind of like smile a greasy smile like you thought I was a loner. Well, let me show you. <laughs> but something. I have a friend. Um, but hold on. We, we have a couple more things to take care of. Um, we have the, the train man didn't come by. Um, oh, no, but he did but... leave a letter. He did leave a letter. Can you can you tell me what that letter? Yeah, says? he left it uh, a few days ago. It had some blood smeared on it, so maybe, <laughs> maybe it's his was, blood. I maybe don't know. He, I think I think what he did was the train man showed up on your night out, and he was just like going to every bar that you went to beforehand, and we're just like make this guy's night a living hell. <laughs> That's exactly it. So uh, this is another essay written by your lovely wife, Robin, and it's part two of her series about love letters, and it's a how-to guide on how to write a love letter. And I was a little, feeling a little guilty because I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I have ever written a full-on love letter. I've written love notes, but I don't think I've ever written a love letter. Uh. A lot of texting with Sarah at the beginning of our relationship, especially when she was in Chicago and I was in Portland, but sure, not a full-on love letter. So I was convicted and inspired to write a love letter for my wife while she is 12 feet away from me. Oh, very nice. Uh, wait, have you given it to oh, her no, yet? Oh, no, not yet. Okay. I, well, I mean, she doesn't listen to this, so <laughs> that's you can give it to her whenever you want. <laughs> the one time um, she's listening. I knew it! <laughs> I uh, I think that's great, man. I think love letters are something that we should always, we should always, like one of the best things about a love letter is that when somebody's not around, you know that at one point in time they were thinking of you in a time where you didn't, you had no idea. It just reminds you that you're loved. And so, yeah, get in there. Do that love letter thing. I'm all about writing love letters because I'm super old fashioned, but um, yeah. But it's, I mean, you just, you deserve, Sarah deserves it after giving you that horrible. (laughs) But, you know, Robin wrote really great advice and she included stuff from Oscar Wilde and like other poets. And it was a really beautiful essay. Yeah. She's pretty great. So if you want to check that out, it's on our Patreon, uh, go to patreon.com slash romcom gents, where for just $2 and 50 cents lets you vote in our poll, which takes us to our second part of our Patreon shilling. We got to talk about this month's poll results. 
Yeah. So this month's poll, we we had four movies on there. We had A Knight's Tale. We had uh, Just Like Heaven. We had Pleasantville. And we had The Proposal. And this is the first time this has happened. Um, we have a tie. Not only do we have just- a tie, but we could have had a tiebreaker. And Rachel could have been the tiebreaker because it was two and two, two for A Knight's Tale and two for... The proposal, or two, two for Night Sale, two for Just Like Heaven. And Rachel realized that she had to vote like an hour ago. And she's like, oh, I got to vote. <laughs> I texted her, actually. <laughs> and she voted not to break one of the ties, but for the proposal. And so they will stand alone as titans of being tied. So um, which, which one do we want to do next week? Because every month, if you're a new listener, we do a, a listener chosen film uh, from our Patreons or from our patrons at Patreon. And this time we have Just Like Heaven and A Night's Tale. So we're going to do both of them. Which one do we do I first? want to do Just Like Heaven because that... I want to do A Night's Tale. <sighs> listen, listen, listen to me now. I'm listening to you Just now. Like Heaven was my first date movie. And I... I don't care about that. <laughs> now that we're in the era of going out again for the first time after a year and a half, I'm feeling sure. nostalgic for that experience. I love A Knight's Tale, and that's why we should watch All right, it. I at least have <laughs> um, emotional connection let's... to this, so I think I win. No, A Knight's Tale, I have so much emotional connection to. I just can't talk about it because it's too sexy for TV. Um, I I think we need a quick competition. Okay. Here. No, that's going to be lame. That's going to be bad audio. You know what? Let's do A Knight's Tale. I'm going to be nice to you because you're... No, no, now I feel bad. You had the bad night. We'll do Just Like Heaven. Yeah, guilt tripped. Worked. Worked, guys. Right, we'll do Just Like Heaven this week, A Knight's Tale next week, and LA Story sometime when the rest of the world catches up. When they up. release it for rental, you cowards. All right, man. Well, I love you, and I cannot wait to come home and take you out on a nice date like you Ooh. deserve. <laughs> I love you, too, and I'm just waiting for you to take me out like a real person. Like a real lady? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you want, we could we could do a, a Lemon Curtis uh, one-two punch. Be my Josephine. I'm Daphne. <clears throat> and this is where we will say oh, goodbye. Ryan and Kelly must bid you adieu. Thank you for listening to our review. Rate and subscribe, we'll even take a bribe. So see you next week on the Gentleman's Guide. To rom-coms. <laughs>